Chapter Sixteen of God's Country and the Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Sixteen. The strange effect upon Josephine of the unexpected appearance of Adair and his wife passed as quickly as it had come. When Philip looked at her again, she was waving a hand and smiling. Adair's voice came booming up the trail. He saw Miriam laughing. Yet, in spite of himself, even as he returned Adair's greeting, he could not keep himself from looking at the two women with curious emotions. "'This is rank mutiny,' cried Adair, as they came up. "'I told them they must sleep until noon. I have already punished Miriam. And you, Mignon, does Philip let you off too easily?' adair's wife had given philip her hand a few hours rest had brightened her eyes and brought colour into her face she looked still younger still more beautiful and adair was riotous with joy because of it look at your mother josephine he commanded in a hoarse whisper meant for all to hear i said the forest would do more than a thousand doctors in montreal you do look splendid mickawee said josephine slipping an arm about her mother's waist adair had turned into a sudden volley of greetings to the feasting dogs and for a moment philip's eyes were on mother and daughter josephine was the taller of the two by half a head she was more like her father he noted that the colour had not returned fully into her cheeks while the flush in miriam's face had deepened there was something forced in josephine's laugh a note that was unreal and make-belief as she turned to philip isn't my mother wonderful, Philip? I call her Mikawee, because that means a little more than mother in Cree, something that is almost undying and spirit-like. You will never grow old, my little mother. Ponce de Leon made a great mistake when he didn't search in these forests for his fountain of eternal youth, said Adair, laying a hand on Philip's shoulder. Would you guess that it was twenty-two years ago, a month from to-day, that she came to be mistress of Adair House? "'And you, ma added Adair tenderly, taking his wife by the hand. "'Do you remember that it was over this same trail that we took our first walk from home? "'We went to the chasm.' "'Yes, I remember.' "'And here, where we stand, the wood-violets were so thick they left perfume on our boots.' "'And you made me a wreath of them, with the red back-niche,' said Miriam softly. "'And braided it in your hair.' "'Yes.' She was breathing a little more quickly. For a moment it seemed as if these two had forgotten Philip and Josephine. Their eyes had turned to each other. Twenty-two years ago, a month from to-day,' repeated Josephine. It seemed as if she had spoken the words that Philip might catch their hidden meaning. Adair straightened with a sudden idea. "'On that day we shall have a great anniversary feast,' he declared. We will ask every soul, red and white, for a hundred miles about, with the exception of the rogues over at Thoreau's place. What do you say, Philip? Splendid, cried Philip, catching triumphantly at this straw in the face of Josephine's plans for him. He looked straight into her eyes as he spoke. A month from to-day these forests shall ring with joy, and there shall be a reason for it more than one. She could not misunderstand that, and Philip's heart beat joyously as Josephine turned quickly to her mother, the colour flooding to the tips of her ears. The dogs had eaten their fish and were crowding about them. 
For the first time Adair seemed to notice Metusin, who stood motionless twenty paces behind them. "'Where is Jean?' he asked. Josephine shook her head. "'I haven't seen him since last night.' "'I had almost forgotten what I believe he intended me to tell you,' said Philip. "'He has gone somewhere in the forest. He may be away all day.' Philip saw the anxious look that crept into Josephine's eyes. She looked at him closely, questioningly, yet he guessed that beyond what he had said she wanted him to remain silent. A little later, when Adair and his wife were walking ahead of them, she asked, "'Where is Jean? What did he tell you last night?' philip remembered jean's warning i cannot tell you he replied evasively perhaps he has gone out to reconnoitre for game you are true she breathed softly i guess i understand jean doesn't want me to know but after i went to bed i lay awake a long time and thought of you out in the night with that gun in your hand i can't believe that you were there simply because of a noise as you said a man like you doesn't hunt for a noise with a pistol philip what is the matter with your arm? The directness of her question startled him. Why do you ask that? He managed to stammer. You have flinched twice when I touched it. This arm. A trifle, he assured her. It should have healed by this time. She smiled straight up into his eyes. You are too true to tell me fairy stories in a way that I must believe them, Philip. Day before yesterday your sleeves were up when you were paddling, and there was nothing wrong with this arm, this forearm, then. But I am not going to question you. You don't want me to know. In the same breath she recalled his attention to her father and mother. I told you they were lovers. Look. As if she had been a little child, John Adair had taken his wife up in his arms and sat her high on the trunk of a fallen tree that was still held four or five feet above the ground by a crippled spruce. Philip heard him laugh. He saw the wife lean over, still clinging for safety to her husband's shoulders. "'It is beautiful,' he said. Josephine spoke as if she had not heard him. "'I do not believe there is another man in the world quite like my father. I cannot understand how a woman could cease to love such a man as he, even for a day, an hour. She couldn't forget, could she?' There was something almost plaintive in her question as if she feared an answer she went on quickly he has made her happy she is almost forty thirty-nine on her last birthday she does not look that old she has been happy only happiness keeps one young and he is fifty if it wasn't for his beard i believe he would appear ten years younger i have never known him without a beard i like him that way it makes him look beasty and i love beasts she ran ahead of him, and John Adair lifted his wife down from the tree when they joined them. This time Josephine took her mother's arm. At the door to Adair House she turned to the two men and said, "'Mother and I have a great deal to talk over, and we are scheming not to see you again until dinner-time. Little Daddy, can you go to your foxes, and please keep Philip out of mischief?' The dogs had followed her close to the door. As the men entered after Josephine and her mother, Philip paused for a moment to look at the pack. A dozen of them had already settled themselves upon their bellies in the snow. "'The Grand Guard,' chuckled Adair, waiting for him. "'Come, Philip, I'm going to follow Mignon's suggestion and do some work on my foxes. Jean had a splendid surprise for me when I returned, a magnificent black. This is the dull season, when I can amuse myself only by writing and experimenting.' 
A little later, when the furs begin to come in, there will be plenty of life at Adair House. Do you buy many furs? asked Philip. Yes, but not because I am in the business for money. Josephine got me into it because of her love for the forest people. He led the way into his big study, and added, as he threw off his cap and coat, You know, in all the world, no people have a harder struggle than these men, women, and little children of the trap lines. From Labrador westward to the Mackenzie, it is the land of the caribou, the rabbit, and the fur-bearing animals, but the land is not suitable for farming. It has been, it always will be, the country of the hunter. To the south the Ojibwe may grow a little corn and wheat. To the north the Eskimo might seem to dwell in a more barren land, but not so, for he has an ever-abundant supply of game from the sea, seal in winter, fish in summer. But here are only the rabbit, the caribou, and small game. The Indians would starve if they could not trade their furs for a little flour, traps, guns, and cloth to fight the cold and aid the hunter. Even then it is hard. The Indians cannot live in villages except at a post, like a dare house. Such a large number of people living in one spot could not feed themselves, and in the winter each family goes to its own allotted hunting grounds. From father to son, for generations, the same district has been handed down, each territory rich enough in fur to support one family, one, not two, for two would starve, and if a strange trapper poaches the fight is to the death, even in the normal year when game is plentiful and fur prime. But every seventh year there may be famine. Here in the north it is the varying hare, the rabbit, that feeds the children of the trap-lines, and the marten and fox they trap, and every seventh year there comes a mysterious disease. One year there are rabbits in millions, the next there are none. The lynx and the wolf and the fox starve. There are no fur-bearers in the traps. The trapper faces the blizzard and the cold to find empty deadfalls day after day, and however skillfully they may hunt, there is no game for his gun. What would he do but starve? if it were not for the fur-trader in the post, where there is flour, a little food to help John the trapper through the winter. The people about us are not thin in the waste. Josephine has made a little oasis of plenty, where John the trapper is safe in good years and bad. That is why I buy fur. The giant's eyes were flushed with enthusiasm again. He pushed the cigars across the table to Philip, and one of his fists was knotted. She wants me to publish a lot of these things, he went on. She says that they are facts which would interest the whole world. Perhaps that is so. Fur is gotten with hardship and danger and suffering. It may be there are not many people who know that up here at the top end of the world there is a country of forest and stream, twenty times as large as the state of Ohio, and in which the population per square mile is less than that of the great African desert and it's all because everyone must live off the game. Everything goes back to that. Let something happen, some little thing, a migration of game, a case of measles. The Indians will die if there were not white men near to help them. That's why Josephine makes me buy fur. He pointed to the wall behind Philip. Over the door, through which they had just come, hung a huge, old-fashioned flintlock six feet in length. There was something like the snarl of an animal in John Adair's voice when he spoke again. "'That's the tool of the Northland,' he said. "'That is the only tool John the Trapper knows. 
all he can know in a land where even the trees are stunted and there are no ploughs his clothes and the blankets he weaves of twisted strips of rabbit fur are adapted to the cold he is a master of the canoe and the most skilful trapper in the world but in all else he must be looked after like a child he is still largely one of god's men this john the trapper he hasn't any measurements of value he doesn't know what the dollar means he measures his wealth in skins and when he trades the basis for whatever mental calculations he may make is in the form of lead bullets taken from one tin pan and transferred to another he doesn't keep track of figures he trusts alone to the white man's word and only those who understand him who have dealt with him for years can be trusted not to take advantage of his faith that's why i buy fur to give john his chance to live adair laughed and ran a hand through his shaggy hair as if rousing himself from thought of a relentless struggle but this isn't working on my foxes is it on second thought i think i shall postpone that until to-morrow philip i have promised miriam that i will have mitisoon trim my hair and beard before dinner shall i send him to you a haircut would be a treat said philip rising he was surprised at the sudden change in the other's mood but he was not sorry adair had given him the opportunity to go he had planned to say other things to josephine that morning if they had not been interrupted and he did not believe that she would be long with her mother in this however he was doomed to disappointment when he returned to his room he found that josephine had not forgotten the conditions of his wardrobe and he guessed immediately why she had surprised them all by rising so early on his bed were spread several changes of shirts and underwear a pair of new corduroy trousers a pair of caribou skin leggings and moccasins in a box were a dozen linen handkerchiefs and a number of ties for the blue-gray soft shirts josephine had chosen for him he was not much ahead of Matusen, who came in a few minutes later and clipped his hair when this was done and he had clad himself in his new raiment he looked at himself in the mirror josephine had shown splendid judgment everything fitted him for an hour he listened for footsteps in the hall and occasionally looked out of the window he wondered if josephine had seen the small round hole with its myriad of outshooting cracks where the bullet had pierced the glass he made up his mind that she had not for no one could mistake it and she would have surely spoken to him of it he found that the hole was so high up on the pane that he could draw the curtain over it without shutting out much light he did this later he went outside and found that the dogs regarded him with certain signs of friendship in him was a growing presentiment that something had happened to jean he was sure that croisette had taken up the trail of the man who had shot at him after they had separated at the gravesides he was equally certain that the chase would be short jean was quick dogs and sledge would be an impediment for the other in the darkness of the night before this hours ago they must have met if jean had come out of that meeting unharmed it was time for him to be showing up at adair house still greater perturbation filled philip's mind when he recalled the unpleasant skill of the mysterious forest man's fighting he had been more than his equal in swiftness and trickery he was certainly jean's should he make some excuse and follow jean's trail he asked himself this question a dozen times without arriving at an answer 
Then it occurred to him that Jean might have some definite reason for not returning to Adare House immediately. The longer he reasoned with himself, the more confident he became that Croisset had been the victor. He knew Jean. Every advantage was on his side. He was as watchful as a lynx. It was impossible to conceive of him walking into a trap. So he determined to wait, at least until that night. It was almost noon when Adair sent word by Matusin asking Philip to rejoin him in the big room. A little later, Josephine and her mother came in. Again, Philip noticed that in the face of Adair's wife was that strange look which he had first observed in her room. The color of the morning had faded from her cheeks. The glow in her eyes was gone. Adair noted the change and spoke to her tenderly. Miriam and Josephine went ahead of them into the dining-room, and with his hand on Philip's arm, John Adair whispered, "'Sometimes I'm afraid, Philip. She changes so suddenly. This morning her cheeks and lips were red, her eyes were bright. She laughed. She was the old Miriam. And now, can you tell me what it means? Is it some terrible malady which the doctors could not find?' "'No, it is not that.' Philip felt his heart beat a little faster." Josephine had fallen a step behind her mother. She had heard Adair's words, and at Philip she flung back a swift, frightening look. "'It is not that,' he repeated. "'See how much better she looks to-day than yesterday. You understand, mon père, that oftentimes there comes a period of nervousness, of a sickness that is not sickness, in a woman's life. The winter will build her up.' The dinner passed too swiftly for Philip. They sat at a long table and Josephine was opposite him. For a time he forgot the strain he was under, that he was playing a part in which he must not strike a single false key. Yet in another way he was glad when it came to an end, for it gave him an opportunity of speaking a few words with Josephine. Adair and Miriam went out ahead of them. At the door Philip held Josephine back. "'You are not going to leave me alone this afternoon?' he asked. It is not quite fair or safe, Josephine. I am travelling on thin ice. I— You are doing splendidly, Philip, she protested. Tomorrow I will be different. Metusin says there is a little half-breed girl very sick, ten miles back in the forest, and you may go with me to visit her. There are reasons why I must be with my mother all of today. She has had a long journey and is worn out and nervous. Perhaps she will not want to appear at supper. If that is so, I will remain with her. But we will be together tomorrow, all day. Is that not recompense? She smiled up into his face as they followed Adair and his wife. You may help me too soon with the dogs, she suggested. I want you to be good friends, you and my beasts. The hours that followed proved to be more than empty ones for Philip. Twice he went to the big room and found that Adair himself had yielded to the exhaustion of the long trip from civilization and was asleep. He accompanied Metusin to the pit and assisted in chaining the dogs. But Metusin was taciturn and uncommunicative. Josephine and her mother sent down their excuses at supper-time, and he sat alone with Adair, who was delighted when he received word that they had been sleeping most of the afternoon, and would join them a little later. His face clouded, however, when he spoke of Jean. "'It is unusual,' he said. "'Jean is very careful to leave word of his movements. Metusin says it is possible he went after fresh caribou meat. But that is not so. His rifle is in his room. 
He left during the night, or he would have spoken to us. I saw him as late as midnight, and he made no mention of it then. It has been snowing for two or three hours, or I would send Maitusen on his trail. What possible cause for worry can you have? asked Philip. Thoreau's cutthroats, replied Adair. A sudden fire in his eyes. This winter may see things happen. The force behind Thoreau's success in trade is whiskey. That damnable stuff is his lure, or all the fur in this country would come to Adair House. If he could drive me out, he would have nothing to fight against. His hands would be at the throat of every living soul in these regions, and all through whiskey. Among those who were killed or turned up missing last winter were four of my best hunters. Twice Jean was shot at on the trail. I fear for him because he is my right arm. When Philip left Adair, he went to his room, put on heavier moccasins, and went quietly from the house. Three inches of fresh snow had fallen, and the air was thick with the white deluge. He hurried into the edge of the forest. A few minutes futile searching convinced him of the impossibility of following the trail made by Jean and the man he had pursued. Through the thickening darkness he returned to Adair House. Again he changed his moccasins and waited for the expected word from Josephine or Adair. Half an hour passed and during this time his mind became still more uneasy. He had hoped that Croissat was hanging in the edge of the forest, waiting for darkness. Each minute now added to his fear that all had not gone well with the half-breed. He paced up and down his room, smoking, and looking at his watch frequently. After a time he went to the window and tried to peer out into the white swirl of the night. The opening of his door turned him about. He expected to see Adair, Words that were on his lips froze in a moment of speechless horror. He knew that it was Jean Croisset who stood before him, but it did not look like Jean. The half-breed's cap was gone. He was swaying, clutching at the partly open door to support himself. His face was disfigured with blood. The front of his coat was spattered with frozen clots of it. His hair had fallen in a rope-like strands over his eyes and frozen there. His lips were terrible. "'Good God!' gasped Philip. He sprang forward and caught Jean as the half-breed staggered towards him. Jean's body hung a weight in his arms. His legs gave way under him, but for a moment the clutch of his fingers on Philip's shoulder were vice-like. "'A little help, monsieur,' he gasped. "'I am faint, sick. Whatever happens, as you love our lady, let no one know of this to-night.' With a rattling breath, his head dropped upon Philip's arm. End of chapter 16